Good morning, church. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Romans chapter 11 this morning. If you're uh, new with us, we're so glad you're here, but we have been going through the book of Romans for a few weeks now, and uh, we've made it to Romans chapter 11, and and, uh, Romans chapter 11 might possibly be one of the most difficult chapters in the book of Romans, and maybe one of the most difficult chapters in all of Scripture. And so uh, as you're turning there, I'm going to have to do a little bit of uh, backup between, uh, between the last few weeks, because it's been a few weeks, of Romans 9 and Romans 10, which Romans 9, 10, and 11 all kind of encompass one part of Paul's argument as it comes to salvation and God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and where that plays out for Israel. And so he's answering this question in all three of these chapters, and it was just way too much scripture to cover all three chapters in one sermon. So we've been able to maybe do it in three weeks. So uh, where were we? Where do we leave off? Romans chapter 8, Paul's been making this, this uh, argument this entire time that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and he has done this on our behalf. And so he ends with this remarkable statement of assurance in Romans 8, 31 through 35. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer that he gives is nothing. No one. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because of what God has done through his son Jesus Christ. And so... Then he kind of shifts into a, well, what about this? What about these questions of God's sovereignty? What about the questions of God's election? What are, what are all these questions? And so let me really quickly go through chapter 9, salvation and God's sovereignty. God's chosen people are children of the promise, not by genealogy, but by governing. Now, we've talked about this a couple of times, that just because they were Israel didn't mean that they submitted to God as Lord. And so it it is not about genealogy, but it is about the governing of God over a people. He goes on to give some Old Testament illustrations. He goes on to Isaac and Ishmael. God's chosen people are children of the promise, not by manipulation, but by miracle. It's not by flesh, but it's by spirit. And so as he gets into that, you can see that salvation is not acquired through the flesh, Ishmael. It is only through the work of the Spirit, which is Isaac, which demonstrates the fact that we must be born again, not just born of flesh, but born of spirit to inherit the kingdom of God. And so he goes on to this is God's sovereign people that he has chosen. God's chosen people are children of the promise, not by performance, but by purpose. So then he uses another illustration of Jacob and Esau. Jacob that he chose and Esau that he had rejected before they had done anything good or bad, he says, listen, this is for my purpose. I have chosen him. So then we get to the point of, well, that doesn't seem very fair. And what I said was, well, you don't want fair because you want mercy. Salvation is not a matter of merit, but mercy. For he says to Moses in verse 15, chapter 9, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So when it comes down to salvation, he says it's not a matter of human will or exertion. It's by the mercy of God. 
So then we have this chapter on the sovereignty of God and salvation. And then he moves to, well, the question of, well, then does that mean I have no responsibility in this? If, if God chooses, then, then why am I even going to try? And he says, no, no, no. There's another side of this coin, which is man's responsibility in salvation. And so he says God's sovereign call of salvation does not exclude man's responsibility to pray for the lost. He begins there in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. This is a challenge for us to be a church and to be a people who are continually praying and desiring for the salvation of others. That our prayers actually play a powerful role in bringing people to salvation in Jesus Christ. Do not stop praying for that person. If there's a person that has been placed on your heart, do not stop praying for that person. No one is beyond God's reach. Amen? It is God's mercy, and we plead for his mercy to be bestowed upon those who need salvation. Therefore, if we're going to pray for people and earnestly desire for people to come to salvation, then we have to begin with seeing them as worthy of salvation. Unfortunately, there's a lot of times where we will elevate ourselves and think that we deserve mercy and other people do not because we do not agree with our lifestyle or what they're participating in and that therefore we put them in a different category. But our prayers play a pivotal role in the salvation of others. So there's a responsibility. God's sovereign call of salvation does not exclude man's responsibility to confess and believe. Just because God is sovereignly in control does not eliminate our responsibility to be people who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and believe in him and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. Romans 10, 9 through 13, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a beautiful promise that is, isn't it? Wow. So it doesn't eliminate that responsibility. And then finally, we saw that it takes it a step further. God's sovereign call of salvation does not exclude man's responsibility to witness and share the good news of Christ. The church is God's instrument by which he uses to spread the good news to all people who must hear. And how will they hear if they're not told? He says there in, in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 10, How then will they call on him and whom they've not believed? And how do they believe in him and whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how do they preach unless they are sent? We end with this and then we move into chapter 11. And chapter 11 is really a question of where does Israel fit into all of this? And as Paul is writing to a Roman church that is both full of Gentiles and Jews, he's trying to answer these questions as best as he can by the sovereign guiding of the Holy Spirit. And he's, he's got this question now of what about Israel? If the Jews are responsible for their refusal to turn to Christ, chapter 10, and they have not come to faith because God has chosen not to have mercy on them, chapter 9, then does that mean that God has rejected his people, chapter 11? This is how we can walk through this. The answer, and you're going to get it in the very first verse, no. He's not rejected them. And so now Paul is going to take five quick points <laughs> to tell you why he has not rejected 
his people. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in, and may God grant us understanding of his word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we come to you. I thank you for the church. I thank you that you've gathered believers who have been filled with your spirit to worship you, to adore you, to exalt you, and that that's not just happening in this building, but it is happening across this world today with every nation and every tribe and every language exalting that you are king because the word of the gospel has gone out, and I pray, Father, that it continues to spread. I pray, Father, that you bless Grace Church today as they preach your word, as they faithfully adhere to the apostles' teaching, to breaking of bread and to fellowship. Father, I pray that you bless our time in your word, give us insight, change our hearts, mold us to be more and more into your image. Father, use us for your kingdom. And Father, take us away from complacency and let us be a catalyst in our faith for those who need to believe. In Christ's name, amen. First thing, God's sovereign call of salvation and a personal testimony. This one's pretty quick. It's one verse, right? Paul begins with, well, you want me to tell you why the, the God hasn't given up on Israel? Because I'm a Jew. That's basically where he gets to this one. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He goes on to give his, his credentials. He, he logs into Ancestry.com and he gets the printout and he says, listen, this, I got proof. This is where I come from. And so he tracks it all the way back to the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And he says, listen, this is me. And you don't, you don't think that God has rejected Israel because he's still saving Jews. He's still using apostles who are all Jews. He is using them for the furthering of his church. He uses these credentials, and we read this in uh, two weeks ago, Philippians 3, 4 through 7, though I myself have reason for confidence in, in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He goes through and he says, listen, I am an Israelite. I am a Jew. I can trace it all the way back. And if you want to talk about being a person, I'm I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a keeper of the law. As to zeal, I'm persecuting the church. I'm going out and I'm dragging people to jail who I think are going off the wrong path. And if God can save me, then he can save anybody. Personal testimony. Do you have a personal testimony that you share with other people? Listen, if God can save me, I, I guarantee you he can save you. No one is written off. God's sovereign call of salvation, and a purposeful truth. Now we're starting to get into the more difficult sections of Scripture. Verses 2 through 10, let's read that together. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the Scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The, elected, the elect ordained, ordained it, but the rest were hardened. 
<laughs> obtained it. My bad. And the rest were hardened. As it was written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Stop there. Paul begins with the argument of those who he foreknew. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. As we looked at this word a few weeks back, foreknew is not just a reference simply to God's omniscience. The fact that he knows all things is outside of eternity and eternity past. That in eternity past he knew who would come to Christ. Rather, it speaks of a predetermined choice to set his love on certain Jews and to establish an intimate relationship. In other words, to be his elect people. That at some point he set his love on them. And we have a hard time understanding God's love because God is love. But we have an understanding of defining love based on our experiences, on what, we, on what we've had happen around us. And most of the time, our love is based off of a selfishness of what we can gain from it. Man, I love ice cream, right? I love ice cream. Not really. I don't really love ice cream. I'm using it as an example. But, man, I love ice cream. Well, what, why do you love ice cream? Well, it tastes good. I, I enjoy it. It, it. It's just one of those things that, you know, fills me up. And a lot of times we use love in the same way. Man, I love that because it, it gives me what I, I desire. A lot of times we use people in the same way. I love this person because of how they make me feel, of what they've, they've filled up in my life. When God uses this idea of love, God is love, and his love is not based on what we give him, but it's based on his grace. It's a gracious love, not because we've earned it or deserve it or offer anything to the relationship, but it is just freely bestowed upon us. God foreknew is more than uh, foreseen. Paul, again, is explaining to the church in Rome that the true Israelites that God foreknew are not those who inherit the biological DNA of Abraham, but those who embrace Abraham's faith. He referenced this back in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he's going all the way back to those who are gods are those are the ones that have by faith received the promise. They are descendants of faith from Abraham. So a faithful remnant with Israel is the true spiritual Israel. He references the story in 1 Kings 19. I'd like to read part of it to you. 1 Kings 19. Elijah is hiding. It says there in verse 9, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, and the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. And the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold... There came a voice to him, and it said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. 
For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. He gives him all this direction of who to put in charge and what to do and who's to be killed by the sword and who's not to be killed by the sword. And then he gets to this, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God is saying there has always, always, always been a faithful remnant, a spiritual Israel within Israel, a people that are called by him, that he foreknew, that he loved, that he put his love upon. And so verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant. Right now, there is a remnant of people who believe in Jesus Christ. They are chosen by grace. But if by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. All who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are for the glory of God alone. This is how salvation takes place. It is by grace. It is chosen in grace. And this choosing is not to simply select one and neglect the other, but it is to call out from. Thomas Schreiner says, Many worry about choosing of some and not all, and it would be unjust. But this idea overlooks the fact that election is gracious. No one deserves to be elected, and thus the election of any is a merciful gift of God that cannot be claimed as a democratic or egalitarian right. We do not deserve salvation. It is a gift of grace. Not one person is good enough. This is the whole idea of Scripture. Like, the law is to point out the fact that you cannot do it, and therefore you need someone who can, Jesus Christ in the flesh, him and him alone, in my place. Therefore, I can be granted access into the family of God. We must not argue with grace, but we must stand in awe of God's grace. Isaiah 45, 4-7, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you. By your name I name you. Though you do not know me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is none other. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. God is sovereignly in control, and he says, I call you, I name you, and I equip you, though you do not know me, which is a reference to before you were even born, I foreknew you. What a beautiful gift of God's grace. There's always been a remnant. And then verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, the elect obtained it but the rest were hardened as it is written God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day and David says let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution for them let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever hardened the inability to see and perceive or believe God this is all throughout Scripture, Deuteronomy 29.4, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. It is by the grace of God that we are prompted to be able to even receive, to hear, and to know 
who God is. John 12, 36 through 40, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Our spiritual rebellion will lead to spiritual blindness and calloused hearts. We are all born in rebellion. We're all born in sin. Every single one of us is living the wayward life, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it because that's, that's how I came into this world. I wondered, and I am one of rebellion. And as rebellion goes on, it leads to spiritual blindness and calloused hearts. So a hardening from God is a fitting punishment to a proud and self-centered life. Therefore, our rejection of God leads to a rejection from God. This is retribution. This is just payment, as that, as that would be defined. So he gives us this idea that Israel is really a remnant. And now he goes on to the third point. God's sovereign call of salvation and a provoking thought. Romans 11 through 16. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. God's sovereign plan of salvation has allowed the hardening of some to be the process of inclusion for others. This is mind-boggling. That God would allow the hardening of some so that others could be included in. That there would be a hardening of some Jews so that there would be an inclusion of the Gentiles. This is how the book of Acts goes. There's a repeated cycle. The gospel is preached in the synagogue. The apostles would go to a town. They would go to the synagogue first. They would preach there. The word would either be rejected or accepted. And usually it was rejected. So some would believe and some would reject it. And so the gospel then was pushed out into the streets. And so they would preach to the Gentiles. And they would find that many would come to salvation. And then the church would be formed. And it would be a, a church of multi-ethnic gatherings of both Jews and Gentiles because some were hardened, others were included in. So we see this as God's way of bringing Jews back into the church, back into the, the, the Israel, the, the true Israel. We saw last week in Acts chapter 6, six through seven, as we were talking about the appointing of the deacons. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's just like one little simple line. 
What this means was, is if you remember, there was such, there was an uproar happening in the church. There was, there's people who were complaining, I'm not being served, and, and things are not going right. So they elected deacons to go and to be the serving hands of the church, to bring unity to the church. And when the unity came to the church, it had a witness in the community. And the witness in the community brought in Jewish priests who were watching the church and said, well, I want, I want to be part of that because that was my job. I was supposed to be serving from, from my position, but now I see that the church is doing it, and I want to be brought in. So if God was hardening some and for the inclusion of others to use his church in that way, then let me ask you this question. This is the question we need to ask ourselves. As Christians, does our unity in Christ, our unity in the church, and our demonstration of our faith in the community cause others to want the salvation we have in Christ? That was the purpose, that our unity in Christ, Christ, community, that our, our fellowship with the brothers and sisters in Christ, even through difficulties, and our demonstration of our faith in community, our great commission, would be such a witness that it would even bring others in, that they would see what we have and say, well, I, I want part of that. I want to be in on that. Unfortunately, though, we've seen it not work that way. Well, I don't want to be a part of that. Those are a bunch of hypocrites. That's a bunch of people who pretend to know and do something else. This jealousy that he refers to, you can see in the prodigal son, as the older son was, he was really mad when the younger son came back. Now this older son was in the field, and he came and he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has came, come back, and your father has killed the fatted calf and because we have, he has received him back safe and sound, but he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and treated him, but his, his, he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. You see that the grace toward the wayward son, the wild son, provoked a jealousy in the law-keeping brother. The one who says, I've been here the whole time. I've been following all your rules. That would be Israel. That would be the, the rule-following religious Israelite. And then you see the wavered, the wavered son be brought in, the Gentile being brought in. Wait a second. That's not fair. You, you can't do that. I, I like how J.D. Greer, he gives this illustration. He's, he's talking about this jealousy of wanting to be in the family of God. And he says this is hypothetical. <clears throat> he's like, but let's say my kids one day, they just decide, no, nah, I don't want to live here anymore. And they, they decide to move out. I don't, I don't want to be part of the family. I'm just going to pack up. I'm going to leave. And so, well, we have these bedrooms open, so let's, uh, let's adopt some kids and let's bring them in. So he adopts some kids and brings them in, and Christmas gets there, and, and they've got all these presents. And then the, the biological kids come, and they look through the window, and they look in, and they're like, wait, who are these kids? What are they doing? They're sitting in my seat, and they've got my presents? That's, that should be me. And he says, listen, this is... This is what it looks like, that some were hardened so others could be brought in, and now that the ones that were hardened are looking on the outside, looking in and saying, I want to be a part of this. I belong. That's my father. So this is what God is doing by hardening some and then including others. And so to, 
to give you the illustration, he gives you a planting term, a God's sovereign call of salvation and a planting term. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, I can see by your faces when I just looked up there, you guys are not horticulturists. And this is a total illustration that might go over your head. It, I can't plant, uh, I can't keep tomatoes alive when it comes in the plant form, right? I can't grow anything. So I had to look this up. I had to research this. And I was like, okay, well, I, I kind of get this. The olive tree represents God's people. The natural branches that remain represent the believing remnant of Israel. The natural branches then that have been cut off would represent the unbelieving Israel. The wild branches that have been grafted into the olive tree are Gentiles who have been, by faith, received Christ and then brought into the family of God. So I'm kind of I'm kind of following all this. But William Ramsey says this, in exceptional circumstances, it is customary to reinvigorate an olive tree which is ceasing to bear fruit by grafting in a shoot of the wild olive so that the sap of the tree enables this wild shoot and the tree now again to begin to bear fruit. So what happens is the grafting in of the Gentiles to God's remnant people serves as a re, um, to reinvigorate the true church. That when we were grafted in, that it awakened God's people. It is, it is serving as a, look, God's movement in the world is for every nation and tribe and tongue, and God is active and he is alive, and it's going to reinvigorate the true church and strengthen its purpose of glorifying God and enable it to produce even more fruit. This is what we've seen ever since the foundation of the church in Acts chapter 2. We've seen how God's word and his gospel has spread across the globe. It's so much bigger than just Israel. It has now moved through every, every continent in the world. But we must not become prideful, complacent, or arrogant in our new standing. He says this to the, the Gentile who has been grafted in. Do not become arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. This is a stern warning, but it's not a warning that teaches that you can lose your salvation. 
because that would go against other things we've read in Scripture. What this is is a stern warning to those who know who Jesus is, who know who God is, who would even call themselves believers to really question whether or not they have actually received salvation. A saving faith is a sustaining faith. This is all through Scripture. First John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. A saving faith is a sustaining faith. Hebrews 3.14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He reminds me of the parable of the sower. How the, so, how the seed went out on all different types of soil, but only one soil produced fruit. And it was only proven after a long period of time. So, the only true test of saving faith is the authenticity over time. John 15, 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes to make it more fruitful. If there is no lasting fruit, you can't presume to be attached to the root. This is where Paul is getting. Now, uh, a few weeks ago, I got to watch this, this wedding video. Anybody like to watch wedding videos? Uh, probably not. But I got to see this wedding video that was shot, and it was, it was actually for a, a local family. And, and what they did is they threw a big old party for this wedding ceremony. And it, it's, it, was, it was an Indian wedding, and, and they rented out an entire uh, you know, place down in the Caribbean. They rented this whole place out, and we're talking a week-long festival of henna tattoos and partying, and I don't know if there was elephants and camels, but man, it was like, it was pretty cool, right? And so I'm watching this video, and I'm thinking, this is so much money. That's what I was thinking. I'm so glad that I'm not going to have to fit this bill when my, when my daughter gets this age. So, you know, I was watching this video, and I was thinking, wow, that's a, that's a great wedding ceremony. But would you say that's a great marriage? You have no idea. Because it's not how emotional and how great and how, how lavish that experience was to start with. What proves a good marriage is the lasting effect of that marriage, till death do us part, and for richer and for poor, right? And so those who come to faith, maybe, maybe it springs up quick like the soil, but then it gets choked out. Maybe... Maybe they received it with gladness, but then the enemy came and he took it away. What shows a lasting salvific faith is that it endures to the end. Listen, we live in a time where there are so many who would presume to be part of the vine. If you, if you asked them if they're a Christian, they would say yes. If you asked them if they go to church, they would say yes. If you asked them if they love Jesus, they would say yes. They may not be able to tell you the last time they were actively involved or the last time they actually shared their faith. If you ask them if they knew for certain they were saved, they would say, yes, I remember when I was younger, I prayed this prayer or I walked this aisle or I fill out this card or I, you know, high-five somebody at vacation Bible school. I, I mean, I don't know. The fact is that saving faith is proven because it's a lasting faith. In fact, the Jews, they knew all the right answers. They followed all the right rules. And it still got them cut off from the vine because they did not have faith in Jesus Christ. So true saving faith is a sustaining faith. 
in Christ and his work alone. Verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? God can save a wild, a wild Gentile. If, a, if God can save a wild Gentile who hasn't been raised in all this, then how much easier would it be for him to save someone who knows all these things? Someone who could be grafted back in. Now, I, I always say I want my kids to have boring testimonies. I, I, want, I want it to, when, when they get to a point and they have to give a testimony that they're like, oh, I mean, I just, I, nothing really bad ever happened in my life. I just don't really have a, a powerful testimony. I'm like, praise God that you didn't have to go through something to have a powerful testimony. Because, in fact, all testimonies are powerful testimonies because you were a wild olive branch and you got grafted in. Right? So if God can save those of us who have colorful testimonies, what about all those who have tried to do the right thing their whole life? God can graft them right back in. Last one, God's sovereign call of salvation and a prophetic teaching. Let's finish out this difficult section. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it was written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrecoverable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. God's partial hardening of Israel was to fulfill the calling of all nations, tribes, and tongues. We benefited from Israel's hardening. The Gentiles have been grafted in, and one day in Revelation 7-9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. God's plan has always been to choose for himself a people whom he would use as an instrument for his glory to be revealed to peoples of all nations, all ethnic groups all over the world. It has been God's design from the very beginning. And this 
And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Who is Israel? It is the elect remnant of Israel. Always has been, always will be. Whom will come to faith in Christ? And the deliverer is from Zion. It is Jesus Christ who makes Israel clean, covers their sins. Salvation is only through Christ and Christ alone. This is the truth. For his gifts and his calling are irrevocable. God will not forsake his elect. He will not abandon his call out ones. He will cause all his children, both Jews and Gentiles alike, to find mercy in Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have a disobedience and all are in gracious need of mercy. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is a diff- difficult section of verses. And I like how Paul ends it. He, he's done his best to explain it. And then he says, but really, who can know the ways of God? Who can understand? Who can give him counsel? Who has given him a gift so good that they deserve something in return? No one. We cannot even fathom how gracious and how merciful and how sovereign God is and how he's working out calamities and well-beings, how he's working out darkness and light for, the, for his own glory. We can't, even, we can't even wrap our minds around this. And so he says, you know what? Everything is from him. It's all from him. He's the source of all things. It is through him. God governs all things, controls all things. He orders all things. There's not anything that gets past him. It is, it is all from him, and it's all through him. You know what? It should be to him. My life, therefore, is lived to him. He is the purpose of all things. He is to be glorified. Even if we can't fathom God and understand his ways of salvation or his as understand the ways of election or trials or suffering or light or dark or good times or calamity. We know our purpose in this world is to worship God, and we can only properly do that through being surrendered to Jesus Christ and His Lordship. So, I ask you, when you look at your life, can you say it's from Him, it's through Him, And it's to him forever. Amen.